Hello, and welcome to Grand Final History. In this episode, we go back to 1924, the 28th season of the VFL. There were some other sporting events in 1924. The very first Winter Olympics were held in Chaminois in France. But Australia would not compete at the Winter Olympics until 1936, not a big distraction for the average football supporter. The Summer Olympics, starting in May in Paris, did capture people's imaginations. A team of 34, men only, competed for Australia, winning three gold, one silver and two bronze medals. Andrew Boy Charlton was a hero, winning the 1500 metre freestyle in world record time. Anthony Winter won the gold in the triple jump, or hop, skip and jump, as it was called then, and Richmond Eve won gold in the diving. In the business world, an American company called the Computing Tabulating Recording Company renamed itself as IBM. The new name seems to have been a success. Back in Australia, 1924 saw the very first federal cabinet meeting held in Canberra. It was hosted at Yarralumla, which would in time become the home of future Governor-Generals. One of the important decisions made by the Australian Federal Government in 1924 was to make voting in federal elections compulsory, a decision that still binds us today. And to show the further development of flying and aircraft, two RAAF pilots managed to circumnavigate Australia, leaving from Point Cook on the 6th of April and returning to St Kilda 44 days later to a hero's welcome in front of over 10,000 people. I'll share a link to a silent film that shows the plane landing in St Kilda and the crowds on the foreshore and the St Kilda Pier. But it would still be a while before a VFL team would get on a plane to travel. 1924 saw the establishment of the Ski Club of Victoria by a group of enthusiasts who were inspired by the snow-covered Mount Buller only a 24-hour journey from Melbourne. It is not clear how many Melbourne supporters were in the initial ski club membership. And in December 1924, American astronomer Edwin Hubble confirmed the existence of galaxies outside of the Milky Way, forever changing the understanding of the universe. But we will be focusing on the stars playing in the VFL. The league delegates were busy in January, there was a major change to the final system to address crowd capacity problems at the MCG. Now, in an average home and away round during the season, at least 80,000 people would attend four games. But the MCG struggled to fit the 50 to 60,000 people that wanted to see a semi-final. The new system for 1924 was a round-robin system between the top four teams. Over three weeks, there would be two games each Saturday, with one at the MCG and the other at a ground to be confirmed. Two games each week meant more room for spectators, more people attending the games, more money for the league to share between the clubs. There had been a round-robin system in 1897, before being replaced with a variety of final systems before the Argus model became established. The one difference with the 1924 round-robin was the potential for a grand final if, after three weeks, the top of the ladder team was not the winner of the round robin system. Like the amended Argus system, being the minor premiers would still provide the distinct advantage of a right to challenge. Only St Kilda opposed the system when it was first raised, but after a week of further discussion, the proposal was agreed by a sufficient majority of clubs. 
It turned out to be a bit of a fizzer, as we will see later in this episode, but most of the reporting at the time was very positive. We'll see if the press acknowledges their initial support when they review the process at the end of the season. At that same January meeting, Collingwood's delegate Ern Copeland was able to reverse the league's previous decision that Victoria Park was not to be used in season 1924 because of a dispute with the Collingwood Cricket Club not raising their membership as had been agreed with the grounds management committee when the VFL clubs also increased their membership. It might have meant a different history for Collingwood if they'd been forced out of Victoria Park in 1924, but it would be another 76 years before the Magpies played their last game at Victoria Park. January 1924 also saw the sad news of the deaths of two key characters in the story of the VFL. In late January, news arrived from Western Australia of the death of the Prince of Umpires, Henry Ivo Crapp, aged 51. He had umpired 17 finals, 7 grand finals, and was inducted into the AFL Umpires Hall of Fame in 2008, as well as being elevated to grand final legend status. He had set the standard of umpiring in the early years of the VFL before moving to Western Australia for work. In 1906, he was so well regarded that the VFL requested that he umpire in the 1921 National Carnival when he was aged 48. January also saw the death of longtime VFL and Geelong administrator Charles Brownlow. He had been a successful player and captain of Geelong when he also took on the role as club secretary in 1888, a position that he held until his death. He was the Vice President of the VFL, also the Chairman of the Australian Football Council and Chair of the League Permit and Umpires Committee and had been pivotal in the successful administration of the VFL from its earliest days. He had become ill during the last football season and never fully recovered. He would leave a widow and three daughters, dying aged just 62. In March, Collingwood's delegate, Ern Copeland, suggested that the league inaugurate a medal for the best footballer in each season. The initial plan, as reported by the Sporting Globe, was for each club secretary to nominate the best player each week and send their vote into the league. But the Australasian reported that the umpires would do the voting. In the initial reporting, before the season started, the award was often referred to as a trophy for the best and fairest player, rather than fairest and best. Both Old Boy in the Argus and Jack Worrell in the Australasian questioned whether umpires were the best people to vote for such an award, given the energy and effort required to officiate the game. They would not be the last people to raise this issue. In addition, there would also be a special game held on Easter Monday where a combined league team would play Geelong to raise funds for the Charles Brownlow Memorial, a grandstand at the Correo Oval that would also honour Henry Young, a former Geelong captain. The game was played on the Monday before the season started in front of 7,000 people and Geelong beat the league team by seven goals. 1924 was also the season where it was decided that home clubs would wear black shorts and visiting clubs would wear white shorts. This would allow players to more easily distinguish between the two competing teams. There had been a letter to the Sporting Globe by Mr J Campbell from North Melbourne a year earlier and now their idea was being implemented by the league. Perhaps there are other people also pushing this concept too. 
If you're interested in the various uniforms and jumpers worn by the VFL and AFL clubs, I recommend the footyjumpers.com podcast and website. It's a terrific resource. There are also changes with the umpire's coach. Jack Elder had retired after just one year due to ill health, and his successor was three times grand final umpire Arthur Norden. The Herald hoped for uniform interpretation of the rules to help improve the standard of play, an issue that continues to be raised in the modern game. There was much enthusiasm for the opening round. New recruits had been trialled, improvements had been made to a number of grounds, albeit the press boxes at Collingwood and Richmond came in for some severe criticism, but overall the level of optimism for the season was high. There were several new coaches. Carlton had enlisted Percy Parrott, the famous Fitzroy forward, as a non-playing coach. Melbourne had got their hands on Fitzroy star Gordon Rattray, but the Maroons would not clear him as a player, so he became the league's youngest non-playing coach at the age of 25. However, he would play one game this year. More on that later. Geelong's previous coach, Bert Taylor, had gone to Western Australia, so Lloyd Hagger took on the role as captain coach. And at St Kilda, Dave McNamara's retirement meant that Wells Eek would take on that role, as he had in 1919. No changes at the other clubs, though South Melbourne's coach, Charlie Panham, had again asked Collingwood to clear him as a player, but again was refused, so he would continue as a non-playing coach. There was some commentary in the papers that the traffic in players between the city and the country was not all one way. After many years of recruiters going bush to find players, some VFL clubs were finding a few players were moving to the country to take up coaching roles. While they may need a clearance for the VFA, the players could go to the country for some good money, a new job, and even if, as Jack Worrell noted, they might be sadly in need of instruction and discipline themselves, the country club had a new player to help make their side more competitive. Another type of traffic was also under consideration, given the popularity of the game and the congestion on Saturday afternoons. Care had been taken with the fixture to ensure neither Melbourne and Richmond had home games at the same time, and that St Kilda and South Melbourne were also arranged not to play in the same week. The pairs of grounds being so close, the crowding was becoming a safety concern. There was an ongoing fear of players exerting too much control on the game, even though the agreement between the VFA and VFL and the district scheme had mitigated the bidding war between the clubs. Old Boy in the Argus warned of the dangers of a players' council, or union as we would call it. Today's Players' Association might be surprised to hear the opinion that when the game gets into the hands of the players, the end will be not far off. The opening round was on the 26th of April, with about 90,000 people making their way to the four games. A measure of football's popularity is that this represents about 10% of Melbourne's population, and that's not counting the additional 24,000 at VFA games. Reigning Premiers Essendon unfurled their flag at Windy Hill, the first flag at this ground, when they hosted Collingwood. But the festive air was reduced somewhat when Collingwood had a stronger second half coming from behind to win by two goals. Fitzroy played Carlton at the Brunswick Street Oval. The Maroons had picked up former Essendon forward Jack Moriarty, who had led Essendon's goal-kicking in 1922 and helped win a semi-final in his first year. But he was dropped to the reserves and could not find his way into the seniors when Greg Stockdale became the leading goal-kicker in 1923. 
but Essendon might have questioned letting Moriarty go when he kicked seven goals in the opening round to help Fitzroy win an extraordinary game against the Blues. At half-time, the Maroons had a seven-goal lead, but Carlton kicked six goals in the last quarter and went down by just two points. Round two saw more large crowds and exciting games. 53,000 people at Princess Park saw Carlton come from behind to tie with the reigning premiers, Essendon, who were yet to win a game after two rounds. Fitzroy's Moriarty kicked another seven goals as the Maroons had an easy win against South, even though South scored a goal after the bell rang for half-time. The umpire could not hear the tolling bell with the noise of the crowd. Although the Sporting Globe criticised the timekeepers for not continuing to ring the bell until acknowledged by the umpire, as required by the rules. Fortunately, it did not impact the result of the game. The Herald had noted the highest scoring games this season. The opening round match between Fitzroy and Carlton was the very first game where both clubs had exceeded 100 points. But Carlton's game against Collingwood in round 5 surpassed that again. Collingwood's 19 goals 17, 131, to the Blues 16 goals 11, 107. Carlton lost the game, but they did set a record for the highest ever losing score. After round 6 at the end of May, Fitzroy were the top team with 5 straight wins closely followed by Collingwood with four wins after losing their round six game to South Melbourne. Fitzroy's Jack Moriarty was on fire, seven goals in each of the first three weeks, and he would kick nine against St Kilda in round seven. At the other end of the ladder, the Tigers were struggling, with just one win against St Kilda in round six after losing the first five games of the season. The state of the game, and its fall from grace when it was better in the past, has worried many commentators over the years no matter what the era. Jack Worrell provided another example of this in May when he wrote, The curse of modern football is that everything has been sacrificed to pace. The game is faster than in the days of old, but to one mistake made 30 years ago, there are a hundred now. Whatever the era, probably whatever the sporting code you follow, there will never be a shortage of those who consider that the current game is not as good as it used to be. Old Boy, writing in the Argus, also called out the need to reform the handball rule, to crack down on throwing the ball. He called for the rule to be adjusted so that it was clear the ball had to be punched with a clenched fist, noting that this would be a much better use for the fist than we sometimes find. By the end of round 12, two-thirds of the way through the season, there had been several turnarounds. Richmond were just outside of the four on percentage. They had won four of the last six games, including wins against old rivals Carlton and Collingwood, and beating top of the ladder Fitzroy. The Maroons were still on top of the ladder, but looking shaky after losing three games in a row, while Collingwood was slipping down the table, having lost five of their last six games in an injury-impacted year. Things were so tough for Collingwood that Bill Buck, the club's secretary, would pull the boots back on for games in rounds 11 and 12, and even come out for the final game of the season. Apparently, while his help on the field was appreciated, it meant that the quality of work as secretary suffered, and when new secretary George O'Connor took over the role in 1925, the club records were said to be in a chaotic condition. The Round 12 Carlton St Kilda game saw one of the more unusual events in VFL history. Halfway through the second quarter, St Kilda's captain, Wells Eek, called for a count of the players complaining that Carlton were playing with 19 players. The umpire did the count, 
and it was 18 on both sides. Although it was reported that some St Kilda players suggested the umpire had not included himself when counting the Carlton players. Years later, Eek revealed that he called for the count as he saw that one of his players was about to be reported for abusive language to the umpire, calling out that St Kilda were playing 19 players, including this so-and-so. As the umpire turned around, Eek intervened and called for the count. In all the confusion that followed, the abusive language was forgotten, and the game went on, resulting in a heavy defeat for the Saints. August saw a three-week break for VFL football, as the fifth Australian National Football Carnival was held, this time in Hobart, Tasmania. While only Western Australia, South Australia and Victoria had competed in the 1921 Carnival in Perth, this year's event saw the return of Queensland and New South Wales. All teams played each other once, and Victoria managed to remain undefeated to take the championship back from Western Australia, who finished runners-up, their only loss being to Victoria. Not every game was an intense affair. The match between New South Wales and Victoria was so cold and wet it ended in farce. The half-time break was abandoned to help finish the game sooner, but at three-quarter time, many of the players ran to the change rooms to get warm. When the umpire bounced the ball to start the last quarter, only 20 players in total were on the ground. When the final bell rang, there were only eight Victorians and seven New South Welshmen on the ground, much to the amusement of locals. Needless to say, Victoria won easily by 10 goals. While the carnival was being held, the Australian Football Council met, and there was a surprise change to the rules. If the ball was kicked or forced out of bounds, a free kick would be awarded to the nearest player of the opposing side. The VFL had met earlier and decided to oppose such a change, but their delegate, Ern Copeland, took it upon himself to agree to the proposal. It would be implemented in season 1925 and remain until 1939. Another proposal to allow the umpire to order a player off the field was lost. When the VFL met after the carnival, the delegates were angry about Mr Copeland going his own way, and there were mutterings about leaving the Australian Football Council rather than implementing the new rule. But it came to nothing, and the new rule would start in the next season. The final two rounds saw a tight end to the season. While Essendon and South were looking safe at first and second spot, the final two places were a race between Fitzroy on nine wins, Geelong and Richmond on eight wins, and Collingwood still holding out hope on seven wins. Geelong played Carlton at Princess Park, and wasted many opportunities in front of goal, eventually losing to an out-of-contention Carlton. The Cats must have contemplated their inaccuracy on the long train ride home. Six goals, 18, to Carlton's nine goals, seven. A seven-point loss, despite eight more scoring shots. Fitzroy had an easy win over Melbourne, but the bigger highlight was Jack Moriarty kicking another bag of eight goals, two, to reach a new record of 72 goals, breaking Essendon's Greg Stockdale's previous record of 68, set just the year before. Richmond had a much-needed win over Collingwood, who then lodged a protest, claiming two of the Tigers, Angus McIsaac and Bob McCaskill, were ineligible to play under permit regulations, given they had both recently played some games for their respective country teams. Both players had played almost every game for the season for the Tigers up to this point, and had no intention of leaving the club, which is what the permit rules had been intended to address. But there was confusion on the wording of the regulation. 
The protests left the ladder in potential confusion as the clubs prepared for the final round. If Collingwood was successful, they would be level on points with Geelong and Richmond. The league was due to meet on Wednesday night to consider the issue, and Wednesday morning's paper contained more shocking developments, with Richmond raising a counter-protest, claiming that Percy Rowe was ineligible given that he had spent the year playing in Albury before returning to Collingwood for the final games of the season. It was going to make for an interesting discussion around the league table. As reported in The Age on Thursday morning, the passageways and corridors leading to the meeting room were packed and a large crowd gathered in Swanson Street to hear the result of the meeting. Even with the advent of radio and the growing popularity of telephones, in this era, if you wanted to know the result, you had to be at the event. The deliberations got off to a tense start when Richmond protested against the Geelong delegate having a vote on the issue given they had a vested interest in the outcome. There was much discussion, which included Richmond pointing out that Rob McCaskill had been selected to play for Victoria. So, was the league also guilty of picking an ineligible player? After 90 minutes, the result was finally declared. By a vote of 4-2, to two, the protest was dismissed. The players were eligible. Richmond then tried to withdraw its protest, but this option was denied. But it only took a few minutes to declare that Rowe was also eligible to play for Collingwood and that everything could continue into the final round. There were cheers from the Richmond supporters in the gathering throng with cries of Eat them alive and go Tigers ringing out across Swanson Street. It was now impossible for Collingwood to make the finals but there was still competition between Geelong and Richmond. Richmond had to win against Carlton because if Geelong won against South Melbourne their superior percentage would put them into the final four. South travelled down to the Corio Oval and led for most of the day, but a big last quarter gave the home team hope that they could make back-to-back finals. But it was all undone. South held on to win by one point, and the win would have been heroic, but not done anything, because Richmond had already had a comfortable win against Carlton to ensure their position in the finals. It was an impressive result for the Tigers, given they had only one win after the first six rounds. They had then won 10 of the last 12 games to lay claim to being the form team. Collingwood had their last bit of glory for the year by beating neighbouring rivals Fitzroy. It was a dramatic win made even more noticeable because of the Magpies' injury problems. They started the game with 16 players and the 17th joined shortly, but it was not until halfway through the first quarter that club secretary Bill Buck pulled on his boots for his final game. But even this result was somewhat meaningless, because with a round-robin final series to decide the premiership, the only position that counted was top of the ladder, which did give Essendon the double chance if they did not win the premiership via the round-robin system. Even Essendon finished the season on an odd note, losing to last place Melbourne, who seemed to have found a forward in young Harry Davey, who kicked four goals, raising his season's total to 14 goals, having only played in the last three games of the season. So it was on to the finals, with two games to be played each week, which, in theory, would allow more people to attend, rather than being crushed in huge crowds at the MCG. Setting up the draw became a complicated affair. Neither South nor Essendon could be allowed to play on their home ground, but nor could clubs be allowed to have too many games at the MCG. After much pencil and paperwork, 
and comparison of options, it was realised there would have to be drawing of lots, and one club was going to risk missing out on playing at the MCG. The first week would be Essendon versus Fitzroy at the MCG and South Melbourne versus Richmond at Essendon. The second week, Fitzroy would play Richmond at Princess Park, while Essendon played South at the MCG, and week three would see Richmond take on Essendon at the Lakeside Oval, while South played Fitzroy at the MCG. South seemed to have got the best of the draw with their second and third games at the MCG, while Richmond got the worst option with no games at the MCG, travelling to Windy Hill, Princess Park and the Lakeside Oval across the three rounds. But their delegate agreed that had been the luck of the draw and this was how things had fallen. While some considered the new system a money-raising exercise by the league, there was also the reality that additional games incurred additional costs for the competing clubs, while gate-takings in the finals were spread evenly between all nine clubs, after the first 10% had gone to charities. However, the league did allow £65 to each competing club per week for expenses. The Herald reported that if the costs of the new system were not covered by revenue, the league would revert to the previous finals system. The first pair of semi-finals, as these games were called, was on Saturday, September 13, where Essendon took on Fitzroy and Richmond played South Melbourne. The last game between Essendon and Fitzroy in August had been a nasty, brutal affair, and there were still some ongoing investigations into incidents from that game. 45,000 people were at the MCG, but the game was reported by Old Boy in the Argus as being below league standard, not helped by the strong northwest wind. Essendon might have taken a breather in the previous week against Melbourne, but they were back to their best at the start of the finals. Sadly, Fitzroy's disappointing second half of the season, where they had lost six of eight games, continued, and they were no match for the Dons. They only managed two goals for the whole day, and were outplayed in every element of the game. An unsatisfying game for all but the Essendon supporters, with a final score, Essendon 8 goals 10-58, to Fitzroy 2 goals 6-18. Old Boy included a joke about Essendon's improved form from one of the spectators that might not have seemed so funny in a few weeks' time. As a racing man put it, they ought to be put up before the stewards for reversal of form. In the previews of the other semi-final, it was noted that South had won both games in the season, getting a win early on when the Tigers were struggling, and then when Richmond were on their successful run, South were still able to defeat them. With a huge crush expected at Windy Hill, given the races were also happening at Mooney Valley, both teams were to travel in special sharabanks, according to the Herald, which could have been a horse-drawn carriage, but was also a term used for early motorbuses. There were more than 22,300 at Windy Hill, perhaps less than the league expected, but they saw a more interesting game. South dominated the first half and had a two-goal lead at the main break, but according to Old Boy, the Southerners changed tactics after half-time and started to play the man and not the ball. Despite suffering several injuries, Richmond kicked seven goals to South's one solitary point, and even with the scoring end in the fourth quarter, South could not make up enough ground. The final scores were Richmond, 13 goals 7, 85, defeating South Melbourne, 9 goals 3, 57. After these first two games, some observations were made about the new final system. While the overall crowd numbers may have been in line with expectations, 
the gate takings were down. The primary reason was that many of the spectators were members of one of the four competing clubs, who did not have to pay to enter the ground when their team was playing. When only one semi-final was being played, there were more neutral attendees getting their football fix for the day and increasing the gate takings for the league. A critical point because, as mentioned earlier, finals revenue was distributed evenly between the clubs and many of them would already have incurred costs, assuming the revenue from the finals would be enough to see them through. The enthusiasm shown for the new system at the start of the year was beginning to wane, as noted by Old Boy Niagas on the Friday before the second round of the semi-finals. If Essendon beat South Melbourne and Fitzroy beat Richmond, the Premiership would almost be decided, and interest in the third round would decline. Before the second round of finals were held, the Umpires and Permit Committee met on Wednesday the 17th of September and opened the envelopes containing the umpires' votes for the fairest and best player of each game across 18 rounds. With only one vote allocated per game, it would be a faster count than today's 3-2-1 system. The winner of the Brownlow Medal, which was described in most newspapers as a Best and Fairest award, was Geelong's Kagi Greaves. Perhaps it was a fitting result that the medal to commemorate a fine Geelong sportsman and administrator was first won by a Geelong player. But it was almost not to be. There had been reports in January 1924 that Greaves was heading to Queensland to work with his father. But luckily for Geelong and Greaves, the move did not happen and the first Brownlow medal was his. On Saturday the 20th of September, Fitzroy was taking on Richmond at Princess Park and Essendon were playing south at the MCG. Fitzroy were out to save their season. They had to win to have any chance of the Premiership. And, in one of the most bizarre selections in VFL history, the Maroons selected the coach of Melbourne to play. Gordon Rattray had kept in Fitzroy in 1923, but had taken on the role of coach of Melbourne in 1924. Fitzroy would not clear him as a player, so he was the youngest non-playing coach. But now it was finals time. Melbourne were not playing, and Rattray was still on Fitzroy's list. He only played this game, and in the following season, he was off in the VFA as a captain coach. 26,000 people were at Princess Park to see this clash, and unlike the previous week, the spectators got a thrilling match that had a finals flavour. There was strong defence from both teams, fine marking, and clever handball. But then it was Richmond's younger forwards feeling the strain towards the end of the game, and the incessant attack of the Maroons finally overwhelmed the Tigers' defence. After a game that had been tight for three quarters, six goals in the last quarter for the Maroons got them home and they had their first win in the final series. But they needed Essendon to lose to keep things interesting. Over at the MCG, 35,400 people came to watch Essendon take on South. A disappointing crowd given the capacity of the ground. And once again, it was Essendon putting on a clinic, showing why they had been the team at the top of the table after the home and away season. While Essendon were fast, full of purpose and methodical, the Southerners were left looking slow and ineffectual. At no point did they put the Dons under any pressure. Essendon led all day and were comfortable winners at the end on 10 goals 12-72 to South on 4 goals 15-39. So now it was up to the mathematicians to identify the potential options. Firstly, South Melbourne with no wins 
were out of contention. Essendon, with two wins, were in the box seat. A win would guarantee the Premiership was theirs. If they lost, it had to be a big loss, and then it would be between Richmond or Fitzroy, as to who would top the round robin on percentage. And if that happened, then Essendon could challenge, and the league would get its much-needed grand final to help boost the revenues, which were looking slim from this new round robin format. But if Essendon only lost by a little, then they could still top the round robin on percentage and be premiers after losing the last game of the season. The reality of the round robin concept had come home to roost. There would be no climax to the season, and there were no defenders of the new concept. And the season certainly did finish in an odd way. At the MCG, only 17,000 people turned up for what was almost certainly a dead rubber. The rain was likely to stop Fitzroy from kicking the mammoth score they needed to get their percentage boost in the hope that Richmond could beat Essendon. But to add insult to injury, this was the game that South Melbourne decided to win. They kicked accurately for a change and showed some method in their game. But it was a tame affair that really did not excite the small crowd. South won 13 goals 86 to Fitzroy 10 goals 13 73 and no one really cared. At the Lakeside Oval there were 25,000 people who got to see a more interesting game which would become more well known for what happened after the game than the match itself. Richmond had been in very good form in the second half of the season and would have wanted to make up for their loss against Fitzroy the previous week. Essendon almost had the premiership in the bag. They just had to avoid losing by a huge score. And the same rain that was falling at the MCG, keeping scores down, would have the same effect at the Lake Oval. The Tigers started well and had a four-goal-to-one lead by quarter time and maintained that lead until half-time. Essendon were the better team in the third quarter, kicking four goals and only trailing by a few points. But the Tigers were stronger in a game that was not one of the best matches of the season and went on to win by 20 points. But it was a hollow victory. Essendon had lost the last game of the season but won the Premiership. The Dons had been the best team all season but it seemed an anticlimactic way to award a Premiership and the low crowd numbers told a story. Winning a Premiership when you've just lost the last game of the season is unusual. But things were about to get even more weird for Essendon. There was significant dissatisfaction between some of the players at the efforts made in the game, and fistfights broke out in the change rooms. Eventually, the team went out to a dinner at Carlisle's Hotel, but when they returned to Windy Hill, there were more fistfights between the players. This from a team that had just won the Premiership. But there would be no immediate rest for the players. The VFL had agreed to a match against VFA Premier's Footscray as a fundraising effort for injured soldiers. It had been a reluctant agreement only after personal appeals from Dame Nellie Melba, patron of the charity, did the league finally agree. Footscray would take on the Dons at the MCG the next Saturday. It was seen as a dress rehearsal for Footscray's long overdue admission to the league. The talk of the 10th club had been continuing in the background and the club from the West wanted to show that it was worthy of VFL admission. Essendon had less incentive. They had won their premiership in the toughest competition of all. If they beat Footscray, they would not get much praise for doing what was expected, but if they lost, they would be damned. In front of 46,000 people, more than any of the crowds for the round-robin final series, Essendon took on Footscray, and it was the Sons of the West who took the victory and the bragging rights. It was a one-sided affair, with Footscray showing faster pace, 
more determination and superior performance all over the ground. When the bell rang out to end the game, the scores were Footscray 9 goals 10-64 to Essendon 4-12-36. So what had gone wrong with Essendon? Well, that depends on who you believe. Rumours and revelations followed. More fistfights in the dressing rooms. Allegations of players have been paid off. Essendon Ruckman Tom Fitzmorris told club officials he would never play for the club again. True to his word, he would play with Geelong in 1925. He then made his position very clear in 1935, when he and Essendon Rover Charlie Hardy published an article in the Sporting Globe stating the game had been fixed. They did not name names, but one teammate was alleged to have said, Why grouch? You could have been in the cut-up too. Hardy said that the performance against Richmond had also been subject to a fix. Then there were the rumours that one player had returned home after the game against Footscray to find a new car in his driveway. Were the allegations true? Was there a fix-up? Well, the truth is, we'll never know. Obviously, Fitzmaurice and Hardy felt strongly that there was truth in the allegations, and Footscray were no strangers to bribery allegations. The 1922 VFA Grand Final was followed by an intense scandal and investigation where Port Melbourne players claimed they were offered bribes by men associated with Footscray and Vern Banbury was banned for life by the VFA. Some would say, where there's smoke? But on the other hand, five players, Marr, Beckton, Stockdale, May and Rawl, went to the truth to clear their names and they fully supported another player, Norman Beckton. Dale James Blair has written an extensive article on this issue, trying to pierce the fog of time, and in his analysis, he leans to Footscray just being the better team on the day. I will post a link to his article on the grandfinalhistory.com.au website. To add to the bitter end of the season, the Essendon Reserves team were caught up in a scandal of their own. The second 18 competition had followed the same round-robin format, but the latter-leading club Geelong had not won the round-robin, so they had the right to challenge against Essendon's second 18. A grand final would be required. But where would it be played? The MCG was being used for the charity game between Essendon and Footscray. The first option was Correo Oval in Geelong, but this was Geelong's home ground. The second option was Cadinia Park, a neutral ground. Geelong would not move there for many years. But Essendon were adamant they would not travel to Geelong for the grand final. The second 18 had the support of the seniors and the Essendon City Council. It is worth noting that Geelong, the latter leader, had travelled to Melbourne for all three of their round-robin semi-finals, resulting in additional costs and fewer supporters. So, Geelong Reserves won the 1924 Premiership by forfeit and Essendon were fined £10, which is about $800 to $900 in today's money. So regardless of the truth about the allegations of match-fixing, the disharmony at Essendon was real, and the club would not be able to reproduce the glory of the dual premiership years of 23-24. They had the premiership, a back-to-back premiership, but with fights between players, stars leaving, the departure of the coach, the loss to a VFA club, and the rumours of scandals, as well as the forfeit of a grand final by their second 18, this was not a triumphant year for the Dons. 
Back at league headquarters, there was still much work to be done before the year was out. The perennial question of the admittance of a 10th club had been the topic of much conversation, as in previous years, but now there were two new factors in the equation. Obviously, a VFA club had just beaten the VFL Premiers, which reinforced the point that maybe there were clubs that could meet the VFL standard. Secondly, there was a development that would become a recurring theme for the league over coming decades. A new ground was being proposed, on the site of the current Amy Park, or Rectangular Football Ground if you're an ABC broadcaster, or on the site of the old Olympic Park, if that helps, not far from the MCG, whatever you call the location. This was being developed by a private company called Melbourne Carnivals, with some help of a local entrepreneur, Collingwood supporter, and what we might call colourful racing identity, John Wren. The league were keen to be able to play games on a ground not controlled by the cricket clubs or the ground management committee. The VFL also wanted to stop VFA, rugby or soccer getting their hands on such a conveniently located ground. Melbourne Carnivals were said to have done a deal with the newly formed Public Service Football Club, which would be made up of federal and state public servants to lease the ground if they gained admission to the VFL. And then there were the usual calls for clubs such as Brunswick, Camberwell, Hawthorne, North Melbourne, Caulfield, Paran, etc. But the league kept delaying its decision and the Public Service Club began to have conversations about joining the VFA, giving the association access to the much-desired new ground. There was talk of Richmond moving to the new ground, but despite an attractive offer from the Melbourne Carnival's company, the Tigers decided to stay at Punt Road. The league was also in a dilemma. It wanted some of the VFA clubs, but it had an agreement with the association to only allow players to transfer with a clearance from the VFA. And so the year would end on this unresolved note. Many meetings, much discussion, but no public announcements. To find out what might happen, we need to wait till the next episode. So we'll leave 1924 here. Not the best year for the VFL. The round-robin final series had been welcomed at the start of the year as an innovation that would allow more people to see finals football in comfort, but the result was a disappointing anticlimax, except for Essendon that gained the premiership. But it was clear that Essendon was not a happy club. The death of Charles Brownlow had resulted in a new award that has grown in importance and stature for the fairest and best player, even if most of the reporting at the time did call the Brownlow medal a best and fairest award. Perhaps 1925, the 29th season of the VFL, would provide a more positive experience for administrators, players, club officials and supporters. If you've enjoyed Grand Final History, please leave a review where you get your podcast from. The more goals we kick, the easier it is for others to find the podcast. If you have questions or want to leave feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.com.au or check out the grandfinalhistory.com.au website or Facebook or Twitter for more Grand Final History.